name is Maurice Smithers. I'm the director of the Southern African Alcohol Policy Alliance in South Africa, SAPA SA, and we are co-hosting this particular uh, gathering with the People's Health Movement, PHM, uh, People's Health Movement in South Africa, of whom Leslie is a member, a person who's going to introduce the session just now. Just some basic housekeeping issues, I think, that we, we're going to have four speakers. Well, Leslie is, is introducing the, the topic, and he will then introduce the, the three speakers, uh, panelists we're going to have. And then he will also wind up at the end of their inputs. We will also ask Safura Abdul Karim, who has worked a little bit in the sector, to begin the discussion after the panelists have spoken maybe just giving a little, a brief insight into what she's doing, but then also kicking off with questions or comments that you might have on the input by the panelists. And then at the end, we will do a wind-up, Leslie will do a wind-up of the whole thing, and we will part company. Please can everybody mute their mic and their camera unless speaking. If I see that there's a problem with a muting, I will actually, uh, I will actually mute somebody but rather, if everybody can keep themselves muted, it'd be much better. And when you speak for the first time, please do introduce yourself and your organization. Obviously, uh, when you do want to speak, if you can, just raise your hand. And we will monitor that and then take people's comments and inputs in the order in which the hands are raised. And then finally, the panelists, as each of you are going to speak, if you're doing a presentation, I will make you a host so that you can share your screen. So if you're all happy with that, I'd like to ask Leslie London to do an overview of the session uh, of what we're trying to achieve and where we're going and then to introduce the panelists. Thanks very much. Thanks, Maurice. So as Maurice said, I'm from uh, People's Health Movement. I'm also at the University of Cape Town. So I'm very pleased to be chairing this. It's a really important session because I think most people who work in the field of non-communicable disease sort of um, have a vague sense it's bad to take uh, money from alcohol. They definitely know it's bad to take from tobacco. But, you know, when it comes to big food and big alcohol, sometimes it's not so clear. I remember when I started doing my research in the occupational environmental health field, I was actually doing work with farm workers in South Africa and discovered, of course, that alcohol abuse is a huge problem amongst farm workers and fetal alcohol syndrome is one of the most common preventable conditions in the world and very common amongst South African children. But it seemed like industry was actually quite involved in funding a lot of work around fetal alcohol syndrome and we soon realized actually that the industry support for this kind of preventive work was easy for them to do because it didn't impact on their bottom line. It meant that they could really um, support programs which located the responsibility for the harms of alcohol onto the users, the women, women who drank in pregnancy. How bad can that be? So I think we learned a long time ago that the way alcohol support uh, industry supports or doesn't support certain kinds of research can play a very important role in legitimating a status quo. And that's why it's really important for us to have this session today to look at conflict of interest because university researchers, academic researchers, NGOs are all faced with shortages of funds. Maurice and, and Adila were just talking um, before the meeting about some of the NGOs that face closure. I know that health committees, community activists in Cape Town want to do something about violence and there's the alcohol industry offering them funding. It's very hard for them to turn it down. So the aim of the session is to help give us a sense of what the issues are, why it's a complex and wicked problem, but also what we can do about it. We have three speakers. We have Gail Amul from um, 
the University of Geneva Institute of Global Health, who will talk first about her work in East Asia related to uh, corporate social responsibility and how that uh, undermines evidence-based interventions to address alcohol. Uh, we'll have Amina Saban, who's a postdoc at University of Cape Town in South Africa, who has done some work around how universities have or haven't actually have policies to manage alcohol industry funding when it comes to research and other activities in the university and how conflict of interest is or isn't managed. And lastly, Melissa Mialon, who's uh, from France, who is uh, part of the Global Network on Governance, Equity and Conflict of Interest in Public Health, a co-organizer who will speak about her experiences and particularly also how we can manage conflict of interest. So that's my introduction of the speakers. So I'm going to hand over to Gail first, who uh, is going to share her perspective on her work in East Asia. Over to you, Gail. Thank you. I'll be talking mostly about the experience here in Southeast Asia, and I'm speaking from, I'm, I'm the secretary of the Asia-Pacific Alcohol Policy Alliance. I'm also a PhD student at the University of Geneva, as uh, Leslie has mentioned, and I actually just joined a research startup here in Singapore uh, called Research for Impact after five years in the National University of Singapore as a researcher. So let's just start with, I think, a historical background of how transnational alcohol corporations actually expanded in Southeast Asia will give you more or less a picture of how alcohol is really embedded in most of the colonization process in Southeast Asia. And a lot of the breweries and the alcohol companies that started in, during the colonial period actually survived the whole decolonization process and eventually became the either state-owned breweries or they were acquired by the big alcohol companies that we know now. For example, the Lao Brewery was state-owned uh, when it was founded in 1973, and now it's partly owned by Heineken. So a lot, and the same as Vietnam's first modern brewery, uh, was founded by its own Ministry of Trade and Industry. So you can see even from that, even from their founding, that there's there's some issue of how, how do you actually define the conflict of interest there if the government itself actually partly owns the alcohol company. So there, there's a lot of issues here, but that's just a background. In terms of the expansion, um, a lot of the expansion involved joint ventures with local companies, local alcohol companies, acquisitions of existing breweries and distilleries, and as well as establishing new breweries. And this is just the numbers and that you see in the, in the maps, the separate maps for each company shows you the market share, their market share in those countries. So you can see there's a lot of um, monopoly in in this in this part of the world, and especially like for example, Carlsberg has basically a monopoly of Lao. Heineken has almost uh, a monopoly of Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia as well. San Miguel, um, San Miguel. I don't know if anyone is familiar in 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 South Africa with San Miguel, but San Miguel is a, a Philippine bread alcohol company which has been slowly expanding globally. But it kind of got stopped in the way by Kirin. Kirin um, actually acquired 49% of the company. It's still expanding. And it has basically the monopoly in the Philippines for alcohol, for both beer and spirits. All these companies that I've mentioned that have um, 
uh, big market shares in Southeast Asia have been using the sustainable development goals in their CSR initiatives, either through their own global foundations or their local corporate foundations. Most of the local corporate foundations that they have, they acquired through the local companies that they acquired in in their own expansion as well. So there's like a lot of uh, history with these foundations where they were founded. For example, a lot of the SDG-related CSR campaigns by Heineken in Singapore, Malaysia, the Philippines are based on either water, reducing CO2 emissions, sustainable sourcing, responsible consumption, promoting health and safety, and of course, growing with there's um, And all of this are under the SDGs. And on the other hand, would have their uh, signature zero, zero thing, um, zero carbon footprint, zero water waste, zero irresponsible drinking, zero accidents culture through their Carlsberg Foundation, which is the global one, and another new Carlsberg Foundation. The new Carlsberg Foundation is mostly focused on art, actually. And then Angkor Foundation in Cambodia, they have been very active in, for example, in uh, prevent uh, drunk driving prevention campaigns. Diageo, uh, on the other hand, has a very global um, scope for its CSR campaigns, which are also based on SDGs, and most of them uh, are on environmental agendas. San Miguel is also about environment, communities, and people development. They have, I should say, that San Miguel is very all-encompassing in the Philippines. Um, When I was growing up, there were only a brewery. But now they have actually expanded to a lot of other sectors. So you cannot even identify its identity now, whether is it still an alcohol company. But if you look at their profits, they are still very much an alcohol company because that's where they get their profits mostly. So here's another, uh, also part of my, my PhD. And I looked at the uh, alcohol advertising promotion and sponsorship uh, policies in this part of the world that Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, Indonesia have very strong uh, policies for alcohol advertising promotion and sponsorship, as well as Brunei. This is a scorecard that I developed for advertising promotion and sponsorship policies. And you can see here that the Philippines doesn't even have any policy on advertising uh, promotion and sponsorship, especially because its mechanisms or regulatory mechanism is a voluntary regulatory mechanism, meaning that the alcohol industry in the Philippines are allowed to self-regulate, which we know, I mean, at least in the literature that we, if we look at the literature on alcohol self-regulation, they don't work. And also that's the same with, for example, Malaysia, Singapore, and Cambodia, where they have basically... Cambodia has its own problem because it has it developed its own advertising code with the the alcohol industry. That's just some, that's one example. So here's just how with my study I also looked into how um, they actually engage other other sectors, for example, civil society and other private sector um, entities, the government and the public sector. And or whether they actually engage both the public and the private sector. All almost all of their activities engage either or or both. This kind of points to the the fact that there's still a lot engagement with the alcohol industry is very much accepted in this part of the region. 
and it's a problem that we have to face. And in in Apapa, um, I, I actually I just joined Apapa last year, so it's it's still all like from my, from my own research, it's it's troubling. But we can see that the partnerships is very common. But they also have a direct donations and direct funding of specific initiatives. This is also um, common in, in, in South Africa, and it's also common in this part of the world in Southeast Asia. So just for an example, Heineken, which has acquired Asia-Pacific Breweries uh, in 2012. So Asia-Pacific Breweries has its own foundation, and they set up this own, its own water education fund. And this was about 300,000 Singapore dollars for water education research and outreach. And they are focused mainly on water conservation, water conservation management. And they sourced this through a partnership with a water research institute and the, the government's utilities board and an, a university in Singapore, the National University of Singapore. There was no clamor for this. There was no argument against this. This was actually lauded. It was, it was featured in eco-business and all of that. And it was seen as a very good example of public-private partnership. Another um, example is Carlsberg Myanmar's illicit trade conference, where they actually held a conference on working together to tackle illicit trade. And this involved the deputy, deputy minister of planning and finance and also the Dutch ambassador and a lot of other big names in terms of uh, from the alcohol industry and delegates from government ministries. Another example, this was in 2017 when Daigeo uh, launched its Road Safety for Sustainable Cities initiative. And it involved not only the University of the Philippines, but also the UN Institute for Training and Research. If, if it's, it's like the UN doesn't also have issues with partnering with the industry. And they see road safety initiative for cities as something, it's a two-year partnership for them, actually. And they all involve educational filming, uh, educational films on drink driving. And it was also in partnership with Samsung, where they have like virtual reality technology, where you can see if it happens when you crash or something. So very elaborate. This is one uh, uh, example of uh, San Miguel Foundation's donations to government agencies in the Philippines. And this is... They do this through um, legal deed of the nations. So it, they are not seen as sponsorship or anything, but they, but they are like legitimately um, considered donations. For example, 126 million peso worth of mobile x-ray units for the Bureau of Customs. It was clear in the deed of the nation that the acceptance of the Bureau of Customs of the X-ray screening units would not form any partnership or joint venture between the San Miguel uh, Corporation and the Bureau of Customs. Another example is them uh, donating 50 units of BMW motorcycles to the Philippine National Police and uh, the Philippine National Police, specifically the Highway Patrol Group. And they were very happy with this because this, is, was the, this was the first time that, or only time maybe, that they received high-class motorcycles as donation. Marketing part, it, it's, it's a very, uh, lo it's lauded uh, um, public-private partnership between the Singapore um, Tourism Board and Heineken's Asia-Pacific Breweries. I took this photo um, last year of a bus in, in Singapore basically advertising tiger beer bottles. 
And this is actually not just, this is not just a local advertising campaign. It's not just a local marketing uh, partnership. It's a global marketing partnership. So you can see here where <laughs> and Singapore Tourism Board is uh, basically, they said that they're using Tiger because Tiger is the icon for Singapore. You can see there, like, um, okay, <laughs> you really want a, an alcohol, uh, a beer to be the icon of Singapore. Or there are so many others, but I guess because it's born here, as they say. Another issue is how foundations become revolving doors or open doors for a lot of government and private sector people um, to be involved in, in philanthropic or CSR activities. For example, the, the board of trustees of the Asia-Pacific Breweries Foundation are, includes the officials, like current officials from the Singapore Food Agency, the Public Utilities Board, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. There's also the their advisory committee includes officials from the Ministry of Social and Family Development, National Arts Council, Ministry of Culture, Community, and Youth. So you can see where conflict of interest there lies. Um, another example is the San Miguel Corporation and um, where their board of directors in, includes a lot of former government officials, including commanders of the Philippine Army, consul generals, the speaker, a former speaker of the House of Representatives, which is the lower house of the Philippine Congress. And then we have the former solicitor general or the minister of justice from way, way back in, uh, during martial law in the Philippines, where uh, he, was, he was also a provincial governor and another former chief justice of the Supreme Court. And, uh, of course, a former secretary of the Department of Finance to complete the list. As uh, uh, almost to the end, the CSR initiatives, and especially those that use as the SDGs, have uh, remained acceptable and even welcome in Southeast Asia despite the obvious conflict of interest. And the CSR, uh, and no, the SDGs. The SDGs has become a tool for the, for the alcohol industry to legitimize their role as a stakeholder in all of this um, sustainable development goal processes and initiatives. And they have also used the SDGs as a tool for the alcohol industry to build a corporate image that gives them that good public image. And this is problematic because in, in the SDGs, part of the SDGs, the SDG 17 involves partnerships. And they took that as a very, it's very seriously that, okay, we'll do partnerships, public-private partnerships. And, and this gives us problems in terms of how, like, how do we monitor this public-private partnerships, especially when um, the, their, their partnerships with alcohol companies can be laden with a lot of, um, uh, how do you, <laughs> I think the term is, uh, I, I, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. <laughs> so I think one, I, I think Melissa would have more um, suggestions for this, but way forward one from, from, from my end as a researcher as well, is that I think there's more uh, a bigger need to monitor the alcohol industry and um, flag conflicts of interest, especially um, when we see how the industry is expanding in the region or in the country. Flagging CSR that 
can be uh, detrimental to public health objectives. Um, and also, like when they're lobbying against um, evidence-based policies for alcohol control. And also flag advertising, promotion, and sponsorship, because this is where they, they have a lot of loopholes. Um, and of course, social media. Right now, everyone is on social media, especially the young. And when, when the young sees how normal public-private partnerships with, with alcohol industry is, there's that image that, oh, it's okay to drink. Um, and there's also, of course, we need to support global initiatives. Um, there is a WHO Safer Initiative, which involves all the NCD best buys uh, for alcohol, uh, for reducing alcohol harms. And um, later down the road, when there's a possibility, we should be able to push for a framework convention on alcohol control, which has... Um, provisions or guidelines for transparency in public-private public partnerships, if we cannot let go of that. I mean, if, if our governments really cannot um, stop those public-private partnerships because it's part of their um, SDG mandate. So that ends my presentation. I would welcome any questions and feedback. Thank you. Thanks very much, Gail. Um, that's really interesting. Um, we'll take about a few minutes for questions, if there are. While people are thinking, I'll just make a comment. You know, uh, Cape Town had a very severe drought a few years ago, uh, to the point we almost ran out of water. And uh, South African breweries, the big conglomerate, stepped into the plate and they offered to provide bottled water <laughs> from a spring from the uh, one um, plant in Cape Town. Uh, and it was so, such a cynical move, but it really captured sort of here we are doing our service to fight an environmental disaster. So it's very interesting you highlight sort of uh, the environment and also the issue of illicit trade uh, because that the tobacco industry in South Africa has really used uh, quite a lot. Richard, you've got your hand up. Yeah, uh, thanks so much, Gail. It was really interesting. Um, you know, the, the last point you were making about the... the um, the industry embedding themselves with government and public-private partnerships and the long-term impact in changing perceptions around the industry. Do you think there's a there's a, a practical way to restrict that in terms of ad, you know it's a form of advertising really. So is there a practical way to um, to try and stop that from at a policy level? I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, actually, for. Um because I actually come from, my original research is actually on tobacco control. So I think the most important thing that we can um, extract is that the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control has given uh, tobacco control movements or organizations the, the room to promote um, restrictions on corporate social responsibility and sponsorships of the tobacco industry. So if there is room for us from, the, from civil society and from researchers to push for something like that, um, then maybe there, there would be um, hope for um, restricting all that, um, limiting uh, public-private partnerships between the government and the alcohol industry. Okay, thanks, Gail. I think we're probably going to have to move on because we do have two other speakers. So thanks so much for that input. It was really good. And I'm sure we'll come back to many of the points. 
Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Amina Saban now to uh, step up. Uh, Amina is a, a postdoc uh, at UCT who has been doing work on uh, alcohol or policies on conflict of interest in relation to alcohol at uh, research institutions and universities. Oh, okay. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Morris. <clears throat> so I was asked to speak about some of the work on research ethics and conflicts of interest with which I had been involved. So just by way of introduction, background, and to give some context, uh, as Leslie said, my perspective on research conflicts of interest is primarily grounded in public health. And I've been engaged in work on research conflicts of interest generally. But in particular, I uh, participated as a co-investigator in the study that led to the establishment of the Governance, Ethics and Conflict of Interest Public Health Network that's based at the American University of Beirut and that Melissa and Leslie are also part of. I was also a co-investigator on a project that we, we tried to, to determine whether scientists had been approached by the tobacco industry to be co-opted by the tobacco industry, and this was done just in South Africa. I am currently involved in a study that aims to examine whether and how the tobacco and alcohol industries have variously tried to capitalize on the COVID-19 pandemic. So for example, including sponsoring of PPE, providing vaccine research for the use of their tobacco plants, donating ventilators, designing lockdown ads for during lockdown and after lockdown. And almost similar to what Leslie mentioned earlier, similar to the opportunism that was displayed by the alcohol industry during the Western Cape drought, when the alcohol industry offered to transport bottled water to poor communities and needy communities by using the industry trucks and also the, the industry road networks. And in addition to those studies, I have managed the University of Cape Town effort through its Office of Research Integrity to ascribe to what was known as the Global Research Fairness Initiative. And this was done in an attempt to identify what policies the various university faculties at UCT have in place to address research partnerships with industry in general, and also to identify whether such policies exist and then where they do exist, to identify gaps in policies that govern the research collaborations. And the Research Fairness Initiative addresses various research partnerships and emphasizes fairness in research collaborations, but it makes no mention of engagement with specific industries. And it doesn't make any mention of engagement with industries such as the beverage alcohol industry or the tobacco industry and generally um, makes no mention of industries whose products are known to um, be harmful. And then more recently, I, together with uh, Leslie London, have been engaged in attempts to draft university policy and guidelines, both for UCT and for institutions globally to guide university partnerships and collaborations with industry in general and um, with the tobacco and alcohol industries in particular. Then one of the, the projects that we embarked upon specifically addressed conflict of interest in relation to alcohol industry research funding, public health and university policy. 
And this, the study was, was, the title of the study was Public Health, Alcohol Industry Funding and University Policy, a Conflict of Interest. And this study came about primarily because we believe that universities and institutions of higher learning should uphold the highest ethical and scientific standards. And we're finding that the roles of academics as primarily teachers and researchers are changing. So nowadays academics are increasingly having to engage as partners with industry. And we're also finding that with um, increased pressure on universities to access private and non-governmental funding, relationships between universities and industry can be expected to increase, which means that the potential for conflicts of interest in university industry relationships can increase. And as we've heard, um, conflicts of interest threaten the autonomy and integrity of universities and institutions of higher learning. The aim of our study was to, to critically explore issues that are pertinent to public health and university funding from industry. And we chose to draw on evidence from engagement with the tobacco industry. And we did this to inform university policies on responding to funding from the beverage alcohol industry. So just to provide some context and also to reiterate some of the, the, the items mentioned by Gail and Leslie early on, industry can threaten university and scientific integrity in various ways. And I'm just going to extract a few of those ways in which the uh, scientific integrity can be threatened. The industry can, for example, dictate the topics of the research. So they decide, the industry decides what is going to be researched. Then they can set the research agenda and decide how things are going to be done. They can manipulate the research design to suit their own needs. They can suppress research in poorer countries and promote research in wealthier countries. So they're more likely to maybe do research in countries that can afford the products that they are producing. The industry can also influence the research outcomes so that the outcomes reflect positively on the industry. The industry can try to delay or suppress publication of the findings of the study to suit their own needs. They can also determine intellectual, intellectual property ownership and have mandatory non-disclosure agreements and essentially have the research and the findings um, the, the research conducted secretly and uh, the findings um, manipulated in such a way that they reflect positively on the industry. And in many ways, the industry can attempt to change the way in which the science gets evaluated. So for the study, we drew on evidence from engagement with the tobacco industry, as I said, because even though, the uh, even though tobacco is a known major cause of preventable deaths. The tobacco industry has for years misled the public. They've subverted research findings on harmful health consequences of smoking. They've engaged in campaigns to undermine scientific findings on smoking harms. And they continue, the tobacco industry continues to promote tobacco products for profit. And some of the tobacco industry strategies have included sowing doubt in the minds of the public and conducting their own experiments and then producing their own results to favor the tobacco industry. They've got huge financial power, which they use to the advantage. And they are absolutely ruthless in ensuring and increasing product sales. 
And for our study, we focused on the alcohol industry because it's particularly pertinent that alcohol is a major risk factor for chronic disease and injury and mortality. Alcohol use disorders are amongst the most disabling of diseases. Alcohol is a known cause in several ICD-10 diagnoses. And yet the alcohol industry uses strategies very similar to those of the tobacco industry. The alcohol industry also has huge financial. And the, um, the alcohol industry uses its funds to, to sponsor and fund political parties to influence alcohol-related policies. And of course, there are known existing partnerships already between universities and industry. So with all of that known and understood, what has actually been the response from public health and institutions of higher learning, schools of public health? Essentially, public health is disenchanted with um, the attempts by the alcohol industry's claims to collaborate with public health in an attempt to minimize harms and protect vulnerable groups. And public health essentially believes that the alcohol industry arguments are disingenuous. But we were interested to find out, do universities and their policies actually reflect the sense of disenchantment with the beverage alcohol industry? So in response, we did a small desktop survey, which was um, a survey of 32 randomly selected top public universities globally. And um, we, we just randomly sampled 32 public universities from available lists of top public universities. And the countries that were included were the United States, Canada in North America, Latin America, the United Kingdom and Europe were um, a group together. We had Africa and the Australasian region also included. And we, what I essentially did was examine the websites of those selected universities to see whether or not they had policies relating to conflicts of interest and engagement with specifically the alcohol and tobacco industries. And the findings were, even though it was a relatively small study, and, um, you know, and university lists obviously are always um, controversial in terms of rankings, but we found that with the 32 universities that we had sampled, none of those universities had policies for engagement with the beverage alcohol industry. And those universities that had specific policies had policies that pertain to the tobacco industry and engagement with the tobacco industry. And those universities that had policies in place for engagement with the tobacco industry had their policies vary in their prescriptiveness. So, for example, you'd find that there would be a university that would be very clear about this university does not engage with the tobacco industry in any form, by no means. And then you'd have another um, university that would say that they would try to manage engagement with the tobacco industry in the event of the tobacco industry offering monies for research purposes. And other um, universities um, would say that they, that particular university has a policy in place that the university will not invest in any companies that are associated with the tobacco industry. But over and above all of those, we found little, if any, evidence of mechanisms 
that attempted to ensure any adherence to policies that were in place on the university websites. So generally, universities face several challenges that have been identified in the literature and that we also um, came up with as part of our research with regards to engagement with industry in general and with industries that have products that are known to be harmful, such as the uh, tobacco and alcohol industries in particular. And I just want to highlight some of the, the challenges that we identified and some of the recommendations that we came up with and that um, the literature mentions. And uh, the first one is one that Gail and Leslie mentioned earlier on, which is that government is essentially disincentivized to address any um, issues regarding the any activities that are disingenuous on the part of the beverage alcohol industry because government receives tax revenue from the beverage alcohol in industry. And um, although it might sound like a big ask, considering what's been happening, but what's required is essentially ethical governance and a review of associations between government and the beverage alcohol industry. Another challenge is that the the beverage alcohol industry often demands secrecy for its engagement with universities through its intellectual property agreements and non-disclosure agreements, as I mentioned earlier. So we would recommend that there be mandatory disclosure of any engagement with industry and particularly with the beverage alcohol industry and the tobacco industries. And, um, and this would be done in the name of academic freedom and knowledge sharing in general. Another uh, challenge for universities is that often universities have no clear policies for, with regards to the engagement with industry. And when there are no policies in place, it makes room for unethical engagements with industry. So it's important that universities develop clear policies and also incentivize adherence to those policies with regards to engagement with industry. And as I mentioned right at the beginning, universities can expect to have a decrease in funding from government, and therefore universities can be expected to increase their engagement with industry. But it's important considering the potential for reputational damage to the university when the university engages with uh, industry um, that's disreputable. So um, universities will have to take into account what, um, you know, the essentially comes down to a cost benefit analysis that needs to be conducted in some form in order for them to decide whether it's actually worth the cost of their reputation and the scientific integrity they're wanting to engage with that particular industry for that particular purpose of research. And then lastly, one of the main challenges that universities face is that industries such as the beverage alcohol industry and the tobacco industry often prey on poor universities with poor scientists that are under-resourced and naive and emerging scientists. So it's important that universities attempt to provide some kind of education for their staff and especially emerging scientists and provide support and protection for their staff. So we recommend that universities draft clear, unambiguous, 
frank, to the point, generic policy for research engagement with industry. And these policies that are developed by universities must have a focus on industries that produce products that are known to cause harm. And these, these uh, policies need to be based on principles of research integrity and harm reduction. And universities should put in place mechanisms to enforce the policy. And uh, one of the things that was mentioned as we were writing um, up the study was that you can use um, a carrot or stick approach where you essentially incentivize people to adhere to the policy or punish those in some form who choose to ignore the policies. And where there are partnerships that already exist and there are partnerships that do exist, then policy should be drafted as to how to manage any of those conflicts of interest. And um, conflicts of interest can be anticipated you know, before, before any impropriety even occurs. So you, in the event of a particular engagement being possible, the, the potential for conflict of interest needs to be examined. And then it's possible that the, the potential for conflict of interest can be diffused or it can be minimized or it can be, um, or you, you can choose not to engage with that particular industry. So forward thinking in this whole process of accepting monies for support from industries of, um, that produce um, products that are harmful, um, you, you, one, one can anticipate where, where this can go and you can eliminate the potential for conflicts of interest. So Mina, just to I'm conclude, to pardon? I mean, I'm pardon? Interrupt you because we've gone way over time. So I wonder okay. if you. I'm at the end. I wonder if you could keep the last comments for when people ask questions. Oh, okay. Okay. Because. All yeah. right. So, okay. So, um, so just in to conclude, I um, I think that it's always going to be that uh, policies relating to conflict of interest are not going to be perfect, and scientists can sometimes choose to ignore them, and sometimes they don't filter down from the institution. So but they're still necessary and they're still useful to preserve research integrity and to um, protect the reputations of institutions, scientists, and protect scientists from predation um, by industry. Thank you. Thanks, I mean, I'm sorry to, to cut you short, but no, I have no, to cut you short. And uh, you can see there's a question to you in the chat. Maybe you could think about it in the meanwhile, when we get around to the general discussion, you could respond to that question. So thanks so much. Okay. Uh, we're going to move on directly to um, Melissa Mialin, who's uh, well known as a researcher in the field of um, conflict of interest. Uh, she's published extensively. She's also been leading webinars for the uh, Geki PH uh, network. Uh, and she's uh, going to speak to us about her experience, but also some of the ideas around how we could manage conflict of interest. And some of the points have already come up in our earlier discussion. So over to you, Melissa. Thanks very much. Okay, so thanks, um, Maurice, and thanks everyone for the invitation first. I am a researcher, so I'm a French and Mauritian, but actually working as a honorary research fellow for the University of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and I'll start a research position in, in Ireland from January. I have no conflict of interest. All of my research is funded by public universities. Um, the WHO, PAHO, and, and civil society organizations that don't receive 
uh, any funds from uh, harmful commodity industries. Uh, I think before going any further, I want us to uh, maybe articulate the different risks that are associated with uh, receiving corporate funding or working with the alcohol or any other uh, harmful commodity industry. And I'm, I've been asked to talk to an audience of civil society organizations or individuals who work you know, in these organizations. So uh, knowing that there are also risks for government officials or researchers, but I'm really focusing on, on those organizations that work in civil society. So first that I think um, we all agree that there is a space if the industry wants to do things for you know, in civil society, works in its CSR initiatives. Uh, I'm not the police, and we are not the police. And if they want to do activities, you know, they can do them. But what we are uh, talking about here is these activities from a public health perspective. So, you know, of course, any dollar invested in um, in any activity in communities might be beneficial to some extent, but there are some risks. Um, again you know for our our health and that of our planet as well and that's what doesn't always come into the equation so the, the first issue is with the initiatives of the industry when they will fund a corporate social responsibility program in a community on alcohol uh, and alcohol and drinking or or other things uh, often research has shown that they would glamorize or promote their product, and um, Gail has shown us, you know, pictures where it's clear that, uh, and Maurice as well, that you see the brand. So this is one clear uh, aspect of this initiative. It's not like any type of uh, public health initiative. Uh, the industry wants to have its logos in those programs, and we have internal internal documents from the tobacco industry. For example, what we, where it was written, black and white, you know, that uh, they would go, for example, to schools uh, doing some tobacco control initiatives. But in reality, they knew that kids would look at their brands and the colors of the uh, material that they would distribute to these kids and remember the brand of the company, you know, once they will start smoking. So it's really a way of getting to you know, your customers and, and talking to kids and talking to communities, not always with nice initiative that you are promoting, but with something else uh, in mind. Um, also, the second problem is that often these initiatives legitimize and gives credibility to, the, to these companies. And in South Africa, we've done work on the food industry, for example, they work with the Ministry of Education that is not such so much aware of um, the risks associated with working with the food industry. Uh, but, you know, we found also similar uh, examples with the alcohol, tobacco industries and others. So they would engage with credible organizations so that themselves are seen as credible partners uh, in health. And then that would allow them to have a space around the policy table. Um, I think something that is important to know, so I'm a food engineer by training, and on the business side, when you do corporate social responsibility, often these activities within a company are articulated, are managed within the public relations departments. So corporate social responsibility and all of these 
uh, initiatives of corporations are really done you know, to get access to third parties in policy, in communities. And this is quite clear even in the structure uh, within companies. Uh, the third point is that often what the, the alcohol industry is investing in uh, does not really address the issue um, of you know, alcohol drinking or tobacco smoking or eating unhealthy prod food products. Or, and because they will focus on you know, personal responsibility, uh, only a few people, and then we'll rely on those people to make the good decisions. And quite, you know, quite the contrary. So not only they don't invest um, and they are not trying to address um, the issues or they are focusing on individuals, but they are also fighting against public health measures that we know are working. So uh, minimum unit pricing, for example, the industry is, is uh, fighting against it. So when it when the alcohol industry goes to civil society organization and says that we want to have a drink driving program and we are keen, you know, to spend money on that with you, then, you know, it must be understood as a broader issue that, you know, they are focusing on certain things, but fighting at the same time uh, against others. Uh, and, you know, overall, that is quite damaging because what they are funding is biasing also the activities of, of civil society organizations. So if civil society organizations have money to do a drink driving program, then they will not invest in an advocacy effort, maybe to push for a minimum unit, the introduction of minimum unit pricing. Uh, so by giving the alcohol industry and others, by, by giving money to these communities, they are shaping, they are shaping our agenda. Um, if corporate... Yes. I'm just checking yes. that you don't have any slides that you want to change because you put your your front slide up. Thank you. <laughs> no, not yet. It was just like uh, you know, yeah, not yet. So it's and I, I will just finish. You know, the, the introduction with that is that also something that corporations also say that they participate, you know, and invest in communities. But if they really wanted to help, they would pay their taxes uh, and there is evidence that they don't you know they don't pay the fair amount of taxes and they're doing tax evasion uh, in a democratic process that's how decisions are taken people pay their taxes and then you know as as a, as a population you know by electing people who decide then we select what issues are more more important or or less important so companies could start by, you know, paying their taxes if they really wanted to help uh, public health. So now I'll, I'll, you know, just, I think it was important as well before starting on the solutions to make clear that there is a difference between industry influence and conflict of interests. So here on the left side, you can see um, I've represented the industry and on the right side are public health professionals or civil society organizations. So when there is a contact between uh, that organization and the industry, then it's an influence on part of the industry. But when someone working in government or uh, anywhere else decides, for example, to take shares 
become a shareholder in a company, then that's the conflict of interest. And it may have nothing to do with the industry. It might be a personal decision and, uh, and not, you know, not a decision that has been influenced in any way by the industry. And I think that's important to understand the difference. For example, the, so in the case of conflict of interest, you have certain solutions to address it, which uh, lay at the personal or organizational level. For the industry uh, influence, it's quite different. And an example of influence where there is no conflict of interest is when the industry goes to school and you know share education material with children. The, the child has no conflict of interest, but obviously, it's, you know, what the industry is doing is influencing these uh, children and his environment. So here, you know, I'm t I will, you know, be talking about solutions. Uh, uh, you know, what can we do? to address everything that we've discussed about. And this is the result of a scoping review that we've done. We found that there are four different types of mechanisms that could be used to address industry um, and all sorts of industry, not only alcohol, but we looked at um, tobacco, food, pharma, um, oil, you know, the oil industry. So, so they are all using more or less the same practices and the responses to address these practices are also very similar. So first you can have more transparency. Uh, you can uh, you know, open the window on what's, what's going on. So it's the first step so that people understand what's happening. Um, we, you need to know what, what are the practices of these corporations who have a conflict of interest, etc. The second step is the identification, monitoring and education about is um, corporate influence and, and conflicts of interests. So it's not enough just to know what's happening and have a database of um, conflicts of interest. You must be doing something with it. And you must check also that corporations are transparent enough. So Coca-Cola, for example, had a, um, the company had a database of all of the researchers that they funded and they say, well, look, we are so transparent, you know, we are working um, to help, you know, and we um, understand that uh, the influence on science by our company is something that we should be talking about. So we have this list of researchers that we fund and then there was a study on that. And in fact, it appeared that Coca-Cola only displayed 5% or, you know, shared only 5% of the people um, they were really working with. So it was only at the tip of the iceberg. They were not very transparent about everything they were doing. So then the third possibility is the management. So instead of saying, okay, we are transparent or we just disclose what everything is doing, we educate people about the industry influence, we could also manage uh, and that's what Amina has discussed. So you put some boundaries around that influence or around conflicts of interest. In certain circumstances, you can't, for example, um, have a say in a discussion or, um, or, or in certain circumstances, you can't uh, go and visit certain professionals if you are a person from the industry. And then the fourth, so we know that for, and, and that's very much, you know, happening in tobacco control because of the framework convention on tobacco control. So in some countries that have adopted very strong tobacco control policies, 
the government could not endorse CSR initiatives of the tobacco industry. And that's one way of protecting public health uh, officials and, and uh, public health policies. So these are the four big steps that could be undertaken. Um, so then specifically in terms of civil society, yeah. Okay, solutions for civil society organizations specifically. We have a, a list of you know, possibilities for governments, researchers, civil society organizations, uh, scientific journals, etc. In, in that publication that I will list at the end. But here I have um, copied the information that we have for civil society organizations. I think uh, it's important to start with a policy or a code of conduct about who you accept funding from. Uh, and if you have any bans on certain industries like the industry or arm industry or pornography uh, industry like the World Health Organization, for example, has, uh, then how of interest will be addressed, reported, documented, etc. cetera. Um, there should also be a policy on, you know, if you accept gift or solicitations from companies, um, you know, how do you address it? and uh, understanding that it may influence your objectivity and independence. And then there are some rules that, you know, the money might not, you know, be accepted if it uh, constrains your capability to do your work uh, without the interference from this company. Uh, or if, you know, if the work that you are proposed to do with that company is inconsistent with the rest of your uh, activities. Um, uh, civil society organizations could also have governance workshops um, and, you know, where these issues are raised and discussed. It could be the public disclosure of funding uh, and fellowships, awards and other things that is, you know, that are received from, received from corporations and any agreements. So not only a policy, but also, of course, being transparent and, and, uh, and public about it. Um, and I've just, uh, and, and of course, you know, some some uh, civil society organizations are also critical in doing this exercise of monitoring the activities of um, corporations and educating the public about these this, uh, different things. So that's also one thing that um, civil society could be doing. Uh, on the right hand side, I've just listed a few examples of, of um, civil society organizations who have um, who have addressed or discussed the industry uh, influence. So uh, in the UK, for example, the Royal College of uh, Pediatrics and Child Health as a statement on its relationships with the formula uh, in industry. Um, the World Obesity Federation has you know, a conflict of interest on uh, uh, and uh, sorry, an ethics uh, policy. So you have some examples in the publication that, that we uh, did, the scoping review of, of um, universities, civil society organizations and others who are trying to address these issues. Um, the main problem that we saw when we did that scoping review of all of the possible mechanisms to address um, corporate influence on public health is that we don't really know what works or not. There is not enough uh, evidence on that. So we are, you know, we push for uh, the introductions of the introduction of um, conflict of interest policy or transparency, but we know that sometimes it's counterproductive. 
transparency, for example, has not addressed the issue of corporate funding. You know, it's not because you say, yes, I'm paid by all of these corporations that you know, it, change, it changes anything. So um, there is a need also for more. Um, and I think it's good when a group introduces such policies that um, then it could, you know, the influence of, of corporations on that specific organization is, me is measured before the introduction of the policy and after. Um, in terms of solutions, uh, I think it's important to consider all types of mechanisms and not just transparency and management again, again, you know, and for tobacco control uh, prohibition in some cases is quite, you know, important and has made a difference. Um, there is a need to continue identifying, monitoring and educating about that influence. Uh, and also for those of you who, who are discussing uh, that industry influence and conflict of interest, uh, it might be quite complicated to discuss these issues. So uh, working as part of um, through collaborations or networks, uh, we, we, we found it was helpful because uh, if organizations work in isolation, then it's be it becomes complicated to uh, say no to industry influence and no to industry funding. And I just want to finish, you know, very, very briefly to say that um, what we've discussed today, the industry and alcohol industry influence on public health uh, policy and communities is to be understood as, as something that we call the commercial determinants of health. So these are all of the practices of corporations that may have, you know, an impact on our health and population and, and planetary health. Um, that, you know, it's not just the industry, it's also sometimes uh, people from the government who are receiving that funding or who have conflicts of interest, as I said, and sometimes the industry, the industry has nothing to do with the decisions of government officials. Uh, this is called the elites theory. So uh, people, you know, from the industry and, and um, government officials, um, I have shown and others have shown in different studies that they grew up uh, in the same, often in the same places and are part of the same social class. So sometimes it's just difficult to say no to uh, people, you know, uh, and we must just acknowledge that uh, it's not just a problem of the industry. Then there is also a need for more synergies, as, I, as I've said just before, between uh, academia, civil society, and also the media. Uh, understanding that conflict of interest and political influence are just one piece. So we haven't talked of, um, uh, I mean, Gail has, has touched on that, but marketing are also a problem. Uh, the project itself is a problem, uh, and, and there are other issues. And it's not just alcohol, as I think we've um, stressed it enough. It's also uh, tobacco and other unhealthy commodity industries. So when you think of this um, funding and industry influence, it should be understood for not only the alcohol industry, of course, you know, that's the core of our discussion today, but uh, it's also very true for uh, other uh, industries. Thank you. Thanks so much, uh, Melissa. That was really interesting and it's a really good basis for discussion. We'll take a few minutes for questions before we move to Safura. So let's see if I can just then make a comment. I think your talk and also Gail's comments also illustrate how important, you know, the typology of 
of controls you propose, it illustrates how important the framework convention has been for tobacco because it really gives you a handle on some of those things. And so the idea of a framework convention for alcohol, for instance, might be uh, really powerful. Of course, getting there is another story. But my question to you is how would you, uh, when you mentioned identification, monitoring, and education, who is the education directed at when you say education? So, I mean, in, uh, if we take the tobacco control example, uh, it might be for government officials. Uh, and uh, on all branches, it's not health. I think that's something important that we found is that, it should, you know, all of these activities shouldn't be addressed only at um, those officials in the Ministry of Health. So I think it's important that even those in working in trade or, or um, you know, agriculture, for example, are uh, understand this, you know, these issues that um, that alcohol industry has an impact on uh, on public health policy and research and, and other um, uh, aspects. Um, it could also be for so we think often of uh, public health uh, students. Or, you know, I work also in nutrition, so dietitians and nutritionists. So, you know, in conferences, having an aspect on that. But I think it's also important to reach those uh, students in business schools and engineers. You know, I had, I'm a food engineer, so I'm uh, also teaching in food engineering schools. Um, you know, I mean, it's important that they understand that when they will take decisions and when they will be doing certain things. Uh, of course, you know, when you are studying corporate social responsibility, it's always, uh, you know, a good angle, but it's important also to have a critical angle to that, um, to that field. So uh, there is a space also in, in um, marketing schools, they do critical marketing, for example. Um, so I think that the scope is very, very broad. The public, I think, understand, but it's mostly because of... Um, you know, specific uh, journalist reports on, on isolated, you know, case studies or scandals. Uh, I think we need to better communicate also to the public that this is something that is more systematic uh, and systemic. So I think, yeah, we just have a lot of work because we have all of those targets with uh, education. Okay. Let's not get too depressed. I see uh, there was one question in the chat about... Uh, would other industries include dairy and other animal proteins from Andrew? As a food engineer, do you want to comment on that? So, uh, so in uh, an healthy commodity? Yeah, I guess that's, that's Yeah, that's the question. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, yeah, interesting. That's interesting. I, I, I've reviewed a, a thesis where the dairy industry wasn't included, but when you look, you look at actually, you know, who funds this, the, the, you know, for example, in research, when the dairy industry funds research, it's not the small farmer that live, you know, next to my house. Uh, it's often those big companies who have enough money. So Nestle, Danone, uh, Lactalis, all of those large companies who have enough money to fund research. So it might be, you know, that they just disguise their um, name as, you know, dairy institute or I don't know what, but often they don't represent the smaller, the small farmers. So yes, I would include the dairy industry and, and others. Yeah. Okay. I think we probably need to move on. There are some other questions in the chat and maybe you could just take a look at them, Melissa, and maybe some of the other speakers as well, and we'll come back to them. But uh, maybe to hand over to Safura. 
Thanks, Leslie. I think um, one thing that is very striking to me is the cross-cutting nature. I'm not an alcohol researcher. I largely focus on sugar-sweetened beverages. And all of the things that have been discussed today, I feel like you see it in our field as well. I think you see a lot of cross-cutting where, for example, big industries are funding water research or water CSR and um, you know they're using large amounts of water and contributing to climate change so you, and you see the same thing with alcohol industry not just sugary beverage industry. Um, the one thing I, I just wanted to share with everybody was just um, a recent study that we conducted um, which is, is going to be published pretty soon um, and it was related to South Africa's sugary beverage tax and the role of industry-funded research in that was enormous. Um, we had three um, bits of industry-funded research that was submitted, um, largely around the inclusion or exclusion of fruit juices. And of course, it was funded by the Fruit Juice Association and or fruit juice industry and uniformly found that fruit juices should be excluded. And that was one of the most influential contributions to the, the policy because in the end, one of the major changes were the exclusion of fruit juices. So I think as much as we see it in alcohol, we're going to see it also in non-alcoholic beverages. And the final thing I just wanted to raise is, I think there's a need to think about conflict of interest in a cross-cutting way because it is affecting many different sectors. And um, just to sort of flag, the World Public Health Nutrition Association has a very interesting conflict of interest statement that doesn't just cover unhealthy commodities, but also covers, for example, arms. So they won't allow any research funded by arm industries um, and tobacco and, and, and industries that otherwise contribute to climate change. So we, I think it's, it's industry funded research, not just within our own sectors, but how is it affecting research about how in is, is funding in, in with regard to, for example, alcohol. It's also about what they're not funding. Um, are they diverting our attention from syndrome? And, and the same uh -huh. can be said of the amazing um, panel and just so rich, full of information. So thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to make a Thanks, Safura. So I think uh, that's really been a very rich discussion. Um, the floor is open for any comments or questions or observations. So, um, maybe I can just kick off and ask people. So we, Safura's comments actually point to this whole question of the, the, what, what one of my students described as a battle for evidence. But when we um, face this regulatory decision making, there's usually like a, a, a chirping of different kinds of public um, opinion makers, but there's always a, a piece of research commissioned. And how do we deal with this uh, contestation around evidence uh, when we come to developing public policy? Maybe I can just float that with a, and the speakers can think about that. Laureen, you've got your hand up. Thanks very much. And, and thanks very much for this extremely useful debate. Um, just to say that the Western Cape Liquor Authority has had a policy on not taking any money from the industry. They, they often approach the regulatory authority saying, oh, let's run a campaign on this or that. And, and, and we just decided no, no partnerships, um, you know, are fine with like-minded groups. So, so just to say that I think that prohibition thing is, is quite an important one. Just, um, Leslie, I know you were involved with the UCT um, statement. I'm also of the Western Cape. And uh, um, there are often um, 
approaches made to the university, which are particularly attractive during a time when um, government subsidies are dropping drastically. And so I, instead of reinventing the wheel, it would be extremely useful to, to point to some um, work that has already been done, something that is some kind of generic uh, statement that, that we could adapt. And I think that would speed up um, such um, policies, uh, at least to be debated at university councils, uh, Senate, and so on. So I, I think, you know, if we could circulate those sorts of things, it would be very helpful. Mm, because money is going to be tight and research work needs to be done as independently as possible, which industry is, whose money is clean? Which industry? And I don't know, maybe uh, then the, if money goes into a separate, into a, into a pool, an anonymous pool, and is dispensed by the university rather than individuals, uh, when the annual report comes out in maybe size two font, they can acknowledge Nestle, alcohol industry, McDonald's. I've seen a Western Cape having McDonald's and Coca-Cola logos on their recent work, which they had to fight to get off because it wasn't seen as uh, unhealthy food. So uh, I just wonder where what's the cutoff because we've got to be pragmatic and there is a gray area and it's it's uh, it's a very difficult um, moral conflict of interest. Borderline. So some distance between the research work and, um, and so if there's some distance between the research work and the uh, um, the actual uh, research uh, the funders. Some for something. Uh, it's it's not easy. No. Uh, no, thanks, Andrew. That point is well taken. And um, sort of uh, where do you get clean money? Well, you hardly ever get clean money. But I think Melissa's presentation is suggesting there might be situations where you would say no completely, and there'd be other situations where you would put uh, a lot of firewalls in place, and that's what is tricky, deciding when and what. Are there any other comments or questions? Hi, I just so, Amina, you've... Yeah. Identifying which funding or which funders is okay. Um, I, had a, I had a recent conversation about this because um, the question was whether, what about the funding from the government? that comes from the taxes from alcohol and tobacco and all the other harmful industries that they are taxing. Do we consider that as not good money? <laughs> so there, there was like, uh, there was that question that was like, right, yeah, where do you draw the line? So it, it is good that that was raised here. And I would also uh, want to know what the others think because on my end, if it comes from taxes, it is if it comes from the government funding research, then for me it's fine. Even though I mean, because you cannot identify the taxes, right? Like which money actually comes from when it goes to the government. So that that was just my thought about that. And I I tend to I mean I I tend to agree with that. So sorry, that's only. Did you want to talk now? Can I go ahead, Melissa? Uh, just that I think you know that's you know the difference between that is you know chosen dem democratically. So you know if then the money goes to the government, then it's government officials, maybe surrounded by experts who decide you know where the money should go, which is quite different. That you know even if it was 
and we have examples in the food and, and the tobacco industries. Even if it was, you know, a, a tobacco industry, a tobacco company funding um, an organization, and then the organization says, "Well, we are independent." Or you are not because you are entirely dependent on this industry. For a government, it's quite different because the taxes come, yes, from the alcohol industry, but it comes from everyone. You know, we all pay taxes. So um, the decisions that the government is taking is not coming from just one and the same organization, and, and in that case, an armful uh, commodity industry. So the, the, your, uh, the space you have in the government of, or as a civil society organization to decide independently, and that's you know, the principle with conflicts of interest, you know, do you keep your independence and, uh, and your... Um, you know integrity and can you you know still be working in the public interest if you take that money and you know what you decide to do with it is is highly important so a government official receiving you know even if it's taxes it's it still works for the government uh, its primary you know um a job is to serve the public if you work for a civil society organization entirely funded by the alcohol industry or 40 persons, you know, coming from the alcohol industry, you can wonder who you work for, yeah. Leanne, I see your hands up. Is it on this point? Because maybe you can just wrap up this point. Uh, no, go ahead and wrap up the point, Leslie. It's on a slightly different point. Okay. So um, I think in South Africa, we've had a long discussion about setting up a health promotion foundation, which would be independent and would be funded from tax. And that's exactly what we see as solving, well, not solving, but providing a solution to this problem, that when industry is producing uh, harmful commodities uh, and it is uh, wanting to put money into CSR or, or whatever, it should go into a pot which they don't control. So that pot is not, uh, the decisions about how that pot is spent is not a decision for them. Uh, they can claim it as CSR, they can say they've paid so much to government, but the decisions about who gets the money and what it's used for is not their decision. The decision of either government or independent uh, experts, uh, and that's the model that, that would be applied. Of course, it's not uh, uh, you know, in that pool, uh, but that's kind of what the discussion has been in South Africa. Um, I think, Leslie, just the... You know, just to add something, I think also the difference with the taxation is that it's compulsory. So it's not up to the industry to decide, you know, we will invest, you know, 1% of yeah. our uh, money in that specific project. So, and there is an example, a very good example for the pharmaceutical industry, because uh, they are funding their own clinical trials, which is very problematic. So in Italy, there is a tax on pharmaceutical companies uh, to the government, and then the government conducts the clinical trials. And I think that's a very good example because then, you know, the tax is, uh, is not, you know, it's um, voluntary taxation, not a voluntary, sorry, a mandatory ta taxation. So all companies have to invest in that. And then the work mm -hmm. and the research is done by, you know, independent researchers. So there are good models in place. Um, yeah, I think that just another model for that. Um, sorry, Leslie. <laughs> um, the the Thai Health Promotion Foundation is a good example of that, and I think um, if South Africa wants to have a model, I think that's one 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 place to look at because they've been, they've been very successful with that. There are a lot of people on this call who know about the Thai Health Foundation because we discuss it a lot in the Health Promotion Foundation discussions. So yeah, it's very much on the cards. 
Um, Amina, are you there? So Lorene asked a question initially about um, institutional policies. Are, are there any good practices that we could share uh, and so to stop people reinventing wheels? So if UWC wants to develop a policy, could they find them somewhere in a repository and build from that? Yeah, when, when, when Lorene mentioned that, one, one of the things that came to mind was the attempts that you and um, another group made to have UCT have some policy in place, and then it was um, kind of thrown out. So I think I think that one needs to benefit from one's experience historically as well. So at the moment, as far as I know, UCT doesn't have a template as such for addressing, um, you know, receiving funding from the the alcohol industry and has some kind of policy in place for funding from the tobacco industry. But, uh, but I think it's definitely something that we should, should try to consider if we are going to have some kind of generic policy, say for UCT that can be used as a template for other institutions like um, UCT. So, uh, yeah, no, I've shared in the, um, in the discussion a document because as part of the review that we did, we found, you know, we looked for the best kind of best practices from across the globe. So for universities, the University of Sydney, uh, there was a small group that was led by Lisa Barrow and, you know, she works on pharma, the pharma industry and tobacco industry. So she has developed a very strong um, um, policy for our group. And that was one of the best examples we found. So I've shared it, but then there is also I've shared the supplementary material where there are policies for, you know, for government uh, um, bodies and universities and different uh, branches of, um, of uh, you know, civil society, etc. That's, you know, maybe you can, where you can maybe tap into the example. Yes. Yeah, thanks, Mel. But I, I think that it's not, it's not a question of there are no policies. I think it's a matter of, of pulling things together in a way that this may be able to be translated across across industries as well. So I know that um, Neve Fitzgerald and her group have also worked quite well on, on trying to develop some kind of template that can be used. And, um, and that's definitely something that I think we should look into. I don't know, right. uh, Leslie, if there is, uh, is there, is there usually, if one approaches universities generally, do you think there's an appetite for actually having these policies in place? So maybe I should just share the experience that I mean I referred to. <clears throat> so some years ago, uh, we tried to get uh, the university to adopt a policy on alcohol and accepting alcohol funding. It wasn't a prohibitive policy. It was like, let's put some, some, um, uh, checks and balances in place kind of policy uh, so that it just didn't run out of control. It was actually sp uh, spurred by the fact that the, the head of psychiatry was seeking funding from the alcohol industry for a chair in addiction psychiatry. Um, the Senate of the university, which is the body of academics, basically did not like this. Uh, there were some, a few very articulate individuals, one of whom had funding from the alcohol industry, who didn't reveal it and said it. Uh, basically spoke about this as sort of public health um, parochialism or um, uh, attacks on academic freedom. And it was completely shut down and, and basically wasn't resuscitated. 
But when the Foundation for Smoke-Free World funded the same <laughs> professor of psychiatry, actually, uh, university finally said, no, 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 this is a problem. We can't take tobacco money. So the, the faculty actually adopted a policy and then the university senate eventually adopted a policy which we can share. But I think it does illustrate that there's a kind of distinction between what's really like off the pole, egregious, and then what's, well, we're not too sure, uh, so things slip in. And that, I think, is a challenge for all our institutions. But we should probably find a way through SARPA to try and set up a, a portal or some information, put up Melissa's paper and the supplementary files and the work, I mean, it's done, so that people can at least look at what there is out there. Sorry, Leanne, I've been keeping you on hold, so your question now. No problem, Leslie. It's an interesting discussion. Um, thanks very much. And thanks to all the speakers. I think it's been such an interesting uh, and rich discussion. My question is to Amina. Um, I had posted it in the chat. I was just asking out of interest uh, why in your study you chose top, uh, the top 20 uh, ranking universities in the world, uh, particularly against the backdrop of um, universities often who feel under financial pressure to accept funding usually not uh, among the top ranking um, in my experience. So just if you could just elaborate a little bit on that choice. Yeah, so, so what, what we did was, um, as I said, it was a, a very small study. It was trying to see, you know, if we could, if we could identify some uh, universities, I have a list of people, a list of universities that we could identify policies from, and then use that small study to springboard a large study and it was completely unfunded study so what we did was we made we made use of available lists so that we could get some idea of um, you know the hundreds of universities in India for example hundreds of universities in in um, the United States and just get a taste of um, what kinds of policies are available if there are policies available and what those policies say. So we are intending to use, um, we, we recognize, I mean, your point is taken that you, that we recognize the problems with, um, you know, and how controversial it is to actually use these ranks at all. And in fact, um, I was just reading an article in nature where the whole, um, the whole issue of ranking seems to, to be contested and new, new means of identifying rankings should also be identified. But you're right, it's, it's more likely to be the, the so-called poorer universities that would be um, maybe more tempted to take, um, in, uh, take industry funding across the board. But that does assume a lack of some conscience on the part of the university. So I think that it would be uh, maybe inappropriate to assume that when universities are under-resourced, they would be um, they would have less of a conscience taking money from from industries that produce products that are potentially harmful. I think also the problem that Amina mentioned was that it was quite hard to get off websites what the policies were, and probably for better or worse, whether it's true or not, but sort of high-ranking universities might have more organised websites or more up-to-date websites the chances of finding anything if it was there would probably be higher but there's no there's no proof of that the the Thanks. other the other thing is that university websites are often structured in such a way that when you do um you're sampling the way we did and you look at the university website you often find that particular information is only available in, on the internet mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you as an outsider can't really get in so there there are are going to be obstacles that one is going to encounter 
And I think that, um, you know, it would be um, an, an approach to, to identifying policies would probably be better to have some kind of footprint in that country and identify the details of the policies for institutions mm. in that way, mm. you know, so that you have people on board, um, you know, who can assist with identifying the policies. Because I think when one looks at the website and you see there is or there isn't a policy, in many ways, you, 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 because the websites are all structured differently, in many ways, one university is very easy to find their policies. In another university, it's very much more difficult. Mm. So one doesn't often know what you miss you only know what you find so in the event of one claiming that there isn't an available policy the chances are quite good that you might be wrong that the policy is buried somewhere else and is not accessible to you in the way in which you are actually structuring your search so for for research of this kind i think it's also important that one develops a methodology that would be able to cover those kinds of obstacles when one searches for the information on policies thanks sabina i think uh, i did you had your hand up Thank you for very uh, interesting presentations and questions that we have to think of. Um, I'm just weary that the conversation, um, and this is not a criticism, but that the conversation is going the direction of academia and researchers and universities. As somebody that comes from civil society and a practitioner, um, we have a particular challenge. There is no money available for social good. Um, and the industry is exploiting this in, in, in different contexts. In South Africa, for instance, around the issue of GBV, uh, uh, they know that it's a national priority. They know the government don't have money. Um, and so they have chosen to put the effort, uh, this is CSR money, into that sector and is creating division in the sector. So the united voice that we had a year ago is now uh, beginning to to um, not be as united um, because you have people that was at the forefront of the total shutdown movement now taking money from the industry and partnering uh, with them on that. For me, the question is how do we take the lessons that you've learned? How do we trans translate that into practical guidelines and advice for civil society who's really struggling, um, but who to a large extent is, is about the only group of people that is delivering on the ground because government, uh, particularly in the South, do not have the resources to address some of, the, some of these issues. And then I just wanted to say, Melissa, I think the elite theory, um, thank you for, for raising that because I think the old boys club um, where you have schools where your politicians and um, higher social classes uh, get educated. That's where they form these uh, uh, allegiance. Um, and, and that influences how in later years uh, we have your political elite and your so economic elite um, having connections. We see this um, even though our current president and Trevor Manuel didn't uh, belong to this club um, when they were growing up, but that is exactly what is influencing um, how policy is being directed, um, given both of the relationship with the alcohol industry. Thanks. Well, they might not have grown up in that club, but they certainly joined it. Absolutely.
Um, Leslie, Leslie, I can't put my hand up. Can I just say something? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just thinking when we were talking about this, about um, this issue of where NGOs get money from and so on, and thinking about also how governments relate to these issues. And we had an interesting scenario in 2010 where it appears that our government, I think largely influenced by the thinking of the World Health Organization, took a decision in November of 2010 to advise all departments in government to not enter into partnerships with the, the, the alcohol industry. Because they said, and this was done through the, uh, it was, I think it was pushed by the Department of Social Development. Um, they, and the reasoning was that if they, if they as government take money from the industry, it compromises their ability to do their, uh, to carry out their legislative responsibilities which I thought was a very insightful uh, approach. However, it doesn't seem to have stuck because um, even though departments were reminded in 2012 in a letter that was circulated by the Department of Social Development, reminded of this policy, increasingly government has actually been entering into these kinds of partnerships, which is, a, you know, and, and, and that's where we are at the moment, unfortunately. But the point I was thinking about was, if we did in fact have a government that had that view, it would probably be much easier to then get that government to understand the need for some kind of um, health promotion development fund, uh, maybe through excise tax or various other taxes, which could then enable civil society to be able to do its work because they would obviously uh, understand that uh, civil society would itself not want to actually enter into partnerships with the liquor industry and therefore it would become incumbent on government to see what they could do to assist uh, NGOs. So I think that is a goal that we can, particularly in South Africa, we can strive for if we can persuade government to go back to that position. Well, uh, for Maurice, you've suggested one response to a wicked problem. Um, I mean, Melissa also spoke about education and it's also so the voice of civil society that needs to be uh, pushing government as well. So it seems to me there's a basis for a campaign of some sort with our partners, and this seminar is maybe one little part of it. Uh, but certainly the trade unions, many of those organisations need to kind of be the par partners, the parties who are saying that this kind of cosy relationship between industry and government is a problem, and that's what we need to work on. Um, Leslie, can um, I just comment on Adelia's um, comments? Um, I think, you know, and so I've been working, for example, in Colombia and, um, you know, there were terrible things, you know, corporations going to distribute um, soft drinks to children on the basis that they were solving hunger. And yes, it was true that the government wasn't doing anything. Um, so when, you know, journalists discussed about, so it was a very isolated area of Colombia where these things were happening. When the journalists from the capital city started to discuss, you know, of the industry doing all of these things, the community itself was, you know, mad at the journalists because the industry stopped its activities and there was no one instead, um, the government didn't fill the gap and these kids were left, you know, without food. So it's, you know, a highly, highly sensitive issue. 
And I think, you know, that's why I was mentioning the, you know, the, the fact that it's not just the industry. And I think we should be also asking our governments, you know, why they're not filling these gaps and why they're not responding to the basic needs, you know, like education and food and sanitation. So we must understand that communities, you know, need also basic, these basic things. And if, if the industry is the only one to respond to that, we must find solutions for them or uh, advocate along, along, you know, be, be with them uh, so that they don't are they are not left, you know, and it's not just, um, you know, pushing outside the industry is, is one thing, but then, you know, if they are dying of anger because no one helps them, then it's, you know, it's also problematic. So thanks, thanks, Melissa. Um, so I wonder if I can pick up on one of the earlier comments, I think, Gail, I think you mentioned the idea of a framework convention on uh, alcohol. So would that be a basis for like a, a public campaign that would mobilize communities? It's a very abstract thing, a framework convention. Uh, but in, in public health, there have been a group lobbying for a framework convention on global health uh, as a right. Um, and so maybe, you know, using this as a tool for advocacy and for mobilizing that communities have a right to a safe environment which would in, include this kind of uh, prohibition on uh, corporate influence over the things that affect their lives. I don't know if I can put that out for a suggestion. And also maybe pick up on um, Safura's comments about, can we learn anything from other sectors about you know, what has worked to uh, counter this uh, collusion? Any comments or suggestions? Yeah, I think as I mentioned earlier, the example of the framework convention on tobacco control and the lessons that a possible framework convention on alcohol control or a framework convention on global health, I really don't care if whatever <laughs> comes up, as long as they um, are, are made or negotiated under the WHO um, to make sure that uh, the public health objectives, global health objectives are there. And that would include reducing alcohol harm, and all the other um, issues that we've been confronting um, with um, uh, unhealthy commodities. But yeah, I mean, if you look at the, uh, the guidelines that the Article 5.3 has in the Framework Convention Tobacco Control, there's a very, there's, they have very specific guidelines on how to deal with donations to the government from this in this from the tobacco industry. So I mean, distilling all these lessons, and there are a lot of lessons from from the implementation of the Framework Convention that the alcohol um, NGOs can also adapt. And it, it's like a, how, for example. Although this was only in, 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 for example, in the Philippines, what they did with um, the taxes that they have. I'm, I'm, I'm going back to the taxes because that is one thing that I think we need to focus on in terms of advocacy. Um, because if, for example, in the Philippines, what they did was the taxes would go for programs for universal health coverage and also health promotion. So... If in, in, on that point, then that means that civil society organizations can have can also have access to that funding in a way. Yeah. So, and, and and that's one thing that we can we can raise or advocate for. Okay, so that is essentially the argument around ring fencing funding that comes from taxes for promoting health or preventing alcohol-related harms or corporate influence keeping them out, etc. Are there any other comments? We're sort of nearing closure, so I'm probably going to have to wrap up soon. Anybody, any of the speakers want to make last comments? 
Sorry, I'm to Philip, who's desperately trying to raise his hand here. Um, uh, so, uh, sorry, Lizzie, what were you saying? No, Philip was asking how to uh, Philip, raise his hand. To, because no, he doesn't know how to Philip, get the attention. To before the speakers finish off. It's over to you, Philip. Yeah, sure. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Yeah, good. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. It, it was really great to uh, to be part of this discussion. And there's quite a lot of stuff that has come out and uh, very, very helpful for us. But I just want to echo what um, Adela has pointed out when she came in. As from the civil society, certainly we have a challenge around um, issues of resource mobilization. And that's why, for example, <coughs> excuse me, for all of us who are basically members of the, the SAPA, we have um, an understanding and the policy that we shouldn't um, get any funding from the alcohol, uh, neither the tobacco industry. So what I, I, um, I was just reflecting when she was sharing and what I've seen from my own experience here in Zambia is that uh, basically what the alcohol industry is doing is to use power and control which is very much enshrined in politics because um, their mechanism of power and control is much also supported by the government structures because um, uh, I think that it is also another way of perpetuating uh, this issue of uh, the philosophy of divide and rule, where they know that as much as civil society will get involved, for those of us specifically who are into uh, this issue of uh, advocacy and the practice around alcohol, our governments are very, very certain that um, there are very few cooperating partners that will put money into supporting alcohol work because um, the outcomes and the, actually the practicalities of the project implementation uh, sometimes is not guaranteed because of uh, the waves of politics and all that. So they are aware very much that actually whatever work that is being done by uh, the civil society will be compromised because the alcohol industry has got a lot of money. They have gone into um, alliances with traditional leaders and they have taken up our small scale farmers by supporting what they, they call entrepreneurship in new farming and they're supplying them with a lot of things. So in that way, they are using this issue of power and control. And you see that they are also siding with uh, some government institution which equally are very, very vital for the civil society to fight for that space. For example, having manipulation of the uh, broadcasting and cooperation, which is a very, very instrumental tool. They are showcasing their CSI works that they are doing. They are showing the donations they are making during COVID. They have um, manufactured sanitizers with their labels. They have also distributed farming inputs and they are showing all those uh, to the people. So in other words, what I was trying to say, and they're also donating breatharizers to the road transport and safety agents. And, and it's really about power and control. And really, I am just thinking aloud that with this kind of research and what is being proposed, maybe it could be used as part of mechanisms as we come to the table to make recommendations with our governments. We know it's a wheel that turns slowly, but we are hopeful that one day things might change. So that is what I just wanted to add to what Adela said. Thanks. 
Thanks, Philip. So um, if we can share experiences, uh, you know, what is happening in Zambia to use in South Africa and what is happening in South Africa to use in Zambia as evidence when we come to policy uh, and, in fact, around the world, that would be uh, one, one way of strengthening our campaigns. Um, I think we probably have to wrap up. So I'm just going to ask the speakers if they want to make any last quick comments. Melissa? Yeah, no, just thank you again for the invitation. And I think it's important to raise, you know, these issues with civil society organization. We haven't um, provided solutions on some of the critical, you know, points raised by the audience. So I'm hoping that, you know, this is just the beginning of a discussion. And we have models from across the globe to, you know, tap into. So, yeah, thank you again. Uh, Gail? Yes, also just want to thank you for inviting me to speak here and also sharing the experience from Southeast Asia. Um, thank you, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Amina? Yes, yeah. Thanks, Morris, and uh, whoever else was involved in inviting me to speak here today. I think that it is, um, there, is there, there are differences between um, my coming from academia and civil society. Um, organizations like um, SARPA, but I, but I do think that we can inform each other. And for example, uh, one of the, the Columbia examples that um, Mel mentioned earlier regarding um, industry, um, industry assisting communities, there are so many examples. Um, I think there's one in, in Brazil where Nestle also sponsored trolleys for women who were living in favelas and these women were also upset, um, you know, that um, people were saying that these food trolleys that are stopped by Nestle are, are, are causing harm. And we have our own version of these examples in South Africa, where the, um, the, who run, the women who run taverns in, in uh, poorly resourced townships often complain and it came across during lockdown where they have no other source of income. So I think that civil society and academia can work hand in hand in developing these policies. And um, I'd be quite happy to collaborate with organizations such as SAPA in furthering our cause. Thank you. Thanks, Amina. Uh, Safura, do you want to make any comments? Uh, Safura is actually gone. Okay. So, so I want to thank all the speakers. I've, I've made the following kind of wrap-up comments. So what I've observed, okay, is there's a set of things that we should be doing relating to pushing our institutions. So our universities, our government departments, our other institutions uh, through our lobbying and maybe sharing experiences, whether it's a portal on policies that SARPA sets up or through the Geki uh, PH network or through Melissa, if we share sort of what there is out there on policies, maybe it'll make our life easier. Uh, secondly, I think there's a whole lot of work to do with mobilizing communities and strengthening community voice. So if communities are clear and articulate about the problems they're experiencing and why such um, public-private corporate partnerships are a problem, then it makes it more difficult for government to, to allow those things to happen. At the same time, we also need to educate government and I will say something about our universities because our universities educate those government officials in MBAs and Masters of Development Studies 
and they bring along the industry people to talk about examples of good governance. So we have to get those programs sorted out because there they are. They're, not, they're basically teaching by role modeling that it's okay to see this as the be-all and end-all. We, we also flag this idea of, of the convention or some kind of legal framework which could give us more uh, tools, but it could also be a way of mobilizing against this problem. And I think um, Gail and Melissa's comments about press and media, <clears throat> we haven't really discussed that in this meeting, but it does strike me that we have to have a better relationship with the press and we, we um, need to make use of the press in a, in a better way, social media, et cetera. So those, are, I think, are things for SAPA and PHM to pick up going forward. I want to thank everyone for participating uh, beyond the call of the two hours of this meeting, and particularly our uh, speakers, uh, and for everyone who made suggestions in the meeting, if there's any follow-up, feel free to contact Maurice. And I think we, we hope to take this discussion forward, as Melissa says, at the start of this discussion. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you everybody. Thanks, everybody, from, from Sapa. Thank you. And, and especially... Thank you, Maurice. Uh, Thank you, everybody. And thanks, for, thanks to PHM for working with us on this thing. Uh, and Gail, I hope you have a nice... Uh, a nice sleep. It's actually ten o'clock now. After ten o'clock at night now in in Singapore. So, uh, what we're going to do with this uh, now is we're going to uh, PHM wants to turn this into a podcast that we can circulate, which would be useful. But I have recorded the whole thing, and we are going to try and use it as a tool for trying to work with other organisations that weren't able to attend today. And I think maybe also to see if we can pull together some kind of um, a short report on it as well, because I think it'd be useful to to pick up uh, on all the points that were raised, uh, particularly from the, the good summary that Leslie gave at the end. And I'm looking forward in particular to going back to look at uh, the presentations that, um, that Gail and Melissa did uh, to study them more carefully. So thank you all very much indeed. And have a nice, um, have a nice uh, rest of the day. And let's look uh, look forward to working together in the future. Thanks, Marie. Thank Thanks, uh, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.